You train to be the fittest and the best so your body can do what it needs to do physically. But it's your mind that's pushing the muscles that you're training for. It's the mind that's actually like more responsible in the race than your body is. Thirty-two-year-old Oksana Masters is about to compete in her fifth consecutive Paralympic Games. A double amputee above the knee, she has competed in every Paralympic Games, both summer and winter, going back to 2012. That includes competitions in four different sports: rowing, cross-country skiing, biathlon, which is a combination of cross-country skiing and shooting, and cycling. She's won a total of eight medals across three of those sports. And the only one she hasn't medaled in? Cycling, which is what she'll be competing in in Tokyo. After finishing fourth and fifth in her two cycling events at the Rio Olympics in 2016, she's calling 2020 Operation Unfinished Business. As soon as that business is finished, she'll turn to the Winter Games, where she hopes to compete just six months from now. Because of that short timeline, she's training for cycling and cross-country skiing at the same time, despite the fact that they require complete opposite arm motions. Cycling is all about pushing, cross-country skiing is all about pulling. Today you'll hear how Oksana balances that training and about her backstory, how she was adopted and brought to America after spending the first years of her life in Ukrainian orphanages. Sports became a source of therapy for her, a way to deal with full memories from that time. Now, five Paralympic Games in, she's come away with some thoughts on how to push through the mental and physical barriers of what she calls the pain cave, whether that's a couple minutes into a rowing sprint or two hours into a cycling road race. I'm Clay Skipper, and this is Smarter, Better, Faster, Stronger, a GQ sports podcast that goes inside the minds of Olympians heading to Tokyo. I'm trying to figure out how, on a stage where everyone's at their physical peak, the world's top athletes get a mental edge. Today's guest is Oksana Masters, who has competed in so many different Paralympic sports, I wasn't even sure how she identifies as an athlete. Well, right now, being that I'm a summer and winter athlete and the fact that Tokyo and Beijing are six months apart I am identifying as a cyclist and then a very frantic cross-country skier at the same time because that is just six months away too. And so what's a typical day of training look like for you right right now? In the morning I get up from like 7 to 10 10 30 in the morning I'm on my bike doing about an hour and a half to two and a half hours. And then we'll do a gym session for about 45 minutes. And then either I have a second training session, which is mostly a recovery ride or cross-country skiing in the basement. And then I also, because I do biathlon, so then we'll do biathlon target shooting. The, the training for cycling is so different mentally too than compared to cross-country skiing. For cross-country skiing, you're out there for maybe two hours max, but it's so super short and sweet. And that's like for biathlon too. And cycling, two hours is nothing. (laughs) You're on there for like three to four and a half hours, followed by another like two hours in the afternoon, depending where you are in the cycle of training. And my progression from sports coming from a rower where my race was only a four minute race, transitioned to cross country skiing, where it was a four-minute race to 45-minute race, and then transitioned to cycling, where it went from a 45-minute race, thinking that was the hardest thing on earth, to an like two-hour races. So it's just the mental side of switching that was probably harder than learning the physical and getting physically fit for the sport. 
but you originally started with rowing, right? So for those who are not familiar with your story, I wonder if you could share a little bit of your background and how you got into all of this. My background to how I even got into the Paralympics and why I'm a Paralympic athlete is because when I was born in Ukraine originally, I was born with both of my legs, but they were missing the weight-bearing bones. And I had all kinds of things wrong to my body. I mean, it was just like opening a box of chocolate and you're like, ooh, what's going to be wrong with this body part? Because my hands were webbed and I ha- I didn't have thumbs on them and don't have the full joints. My I had six toes, which I thought was the coolest thing on earth. And I actually, a lot of people don't realize, but I don't have a bicep on my right side. So if you watch me ride and I'm totally not paying attention, I'll just start veering off to one side because my left side will just outpower the other one. And when I was adopted when I was seven and a half by my mom, who adopted me a single parent, we first lived in Buffalo, New York. And then when I was 13, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And both of my legs were amputated. The first one was when I was nine. And then the other one was when I was 14, 13. Somebody in my middle school was telling me to try. There's an adapted program, sports program, which was the Louisville Adapted Rowing Club. And I was typical teenager, super stubborn, thought that, well, just because I have prosthetics doesn't mean I have to do an adapted program. Like, I want to do what my friends are doing, which is a volleyball and a dance team. My mom just finally told me to just go out and try, see if you like rowing. And finally, just to kind of stop having her to ask me, keep trying it. And I told her, fine. And when I was 13, I got in the boat for the first time. And I have to say when... As a 13-year-old girl, coming to a whole new school, having to make friends all over again, just being told that I have to make the choice to amputate my second leg above the knee, it gave me an outlet and a place for me to let go of all of my frustrations. I had no idea that it would lead to the Paralympics or racing for Team USA whatsoever. I've heard you say it was your way to scream physically but silently. Yeah. When I was in Ukraine, there were some pretty, it was a government ran orphanage and there's a lot of corruption that happens in those kind of orphanages. And we definitely weren't fed enough, weren't treated the best. And I had a lot of memories I suppressed so much just from my childhood in the orphanages. And I lived in three different orphanages. So I have memories from different ones and just moving around and needing to constantly adjust to that. And for me, when I first started sports, it wasn't to become the Olympian or Paralympian. It wasn't to race for Team USA. It was my therapy because I went through a lot of therapy as a kid, but I never talked because it was sometimes so hard to verbalize things and verbalize the memories because when you speak something, it just makes it true. When you hear yourself say it, it just is so much power saying things. And that was a way where I got to pull on the oars as hard as I could. And that was my way to scream without having to actually scream. Is it still therapeutic for you in the in the same way? Like I'm just thinking of you talking about in cycling where you're trying to stay on this, the upper echelon of your sort of lactate threshold. And it's, I'm sure it's unbelievably painful. Is, is that still your way of screaming or is it different now? No, sports is my always therapy, and especially in training. It's, I think, more so now I've learned how to harness it. And just in training, let everything out, think about everything, process everything, scream that way. 
And then on the start line, I've learned to kind of do it without like going and blacking out entirely and just doing it from the pure angry side, but from an athlete structured side and mentally a strong side too and using it in the moments I need to use it. But the cool thing about cycling is you get into this weird trance, like into this rhythm. And it's so easy. And it's something I do for some reason. I don't know why. I've tried to figure this out and really think about it. But something I've done through all my sports is count to 10 and start over. And I just get into this trance of just like one, two, three, four, all the way to 10, and then just start over. And I'm not focusing about the pain that I'm feeling. I'm cognitive of everything around, but... I guess in some ways when I was telling our sports like that I do this, he was saying like, you're doing mindfulness while you're racing. And I had no idea this is before sports psychology and mindfulness and meditation, all this stuff became a thing. But I think it was part of ways I've learned how to cope through therapy as a kid in some ways, but also just gave me something to focus on that counting rhythm and feeling it with my body that I've learned to race race and not just train race as therapy type thing. Does the pain go away in that trance or it's just, it just sort of goes into the background a little bit because you're, you're not focusing on it. Yeah. I wouldn't say it goes away. It definitely goes more in like the background kind of, you're aware something's there, but it's not the forefront of your, (laughs) of your brain or your body. I don't know. It's just like, you're just, you're doing what you've trained for such a long time and going in autopilot mode. And then my way to keep myself awake and present by that counting. I want to circle back on one thing, a couple of things you said. One first, that I didn't realize you don't have a bicep on your right side, but I've seen your arms. You, you're strong arms. What? It's what? just tricep. It's just, I'm constantly doing dips because I'm a above knee amputee. A lot of people don't realize the difference between amputations. They just think an amputee is an amputee. But for every joint you're missing, it's a very different way to walk. And so when you're missing just an ankle or if you're missing below the knee or a knee or a knee and a hip, it's different. So I can't stand up from sitting position. I have to use my arms and like push myself up or I start to sit down with my arms. So I use a lot of tricep. Even in order for the just before I... I was able to walk, but on days where I wasn't able to walk, like I would just scoot. And there's just a lot of tricep stuff that I think that's why skiing was such an easier transition for me because I was so used to using that muscle group. And because of my weird way that my anatomy, my arms aren't straight, that I just ski more with my tricep and my lats. So it kind of makes it look like my arms bigger than it really is. I don't have that cool like bicep curve. But I mean, it's, it makes it so much, I mean, even more impressive. It's you're doing feats that require so much strength. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering why I'm doing, for missing muscle groups in my arms, why am I doing all my sports with my arms where <laughs> <laughs> I could just run and not have to rely on that. But I think that's the cool thing about, and this is something I, it took me a long time to stop fighting, but all of our bodies are so resilient. We naturally know what we need to do to adapt. Like if you break your leg and your leg is in a cast and you can't use it, it's so, or an arm, it's wild how fast the first few days are hard learning it, but you adapt to doing your normal day routines so fast. And I just got used to just, my body was just, instead of fighting it, just letting it do naturally how to like open something or to ride a bike. And instead of trying to do it the right way, do it the way that the natural gifts that are given to you in a way that you don't even know that it's there. 
and then just fine-tune that. Forgive my ignorance, but what is the cycling event? What is the competition that you'll do? So I do road cycling, and it's time trial, which is in Tokyo. It's going to be a 20-kilometer time trial on the Formula One Fuji racetrack, which is super sweet. And then the road race can vary from 48 kilometers to, I think, like 80 kilometers for my category. And then for each category in the Paralympics, each class has different ranges that they compete in. So can you medal in the time trial and in the road? Those are separate events? Yep. I love time trials. I love to be in that pain cave and just see how long you can hold that pain. It's the ultimate test against you and the clock, no one else. You're in ultimate control unless you get a flat tire. Then that's not cool. The road race, it's not necessarily the strongest person that wins. It's the smartest person that wins. And it's taken me a very long time to learn that because none of the sports I've competed in have that aspect. It's all about fitness and you have to be the strongest and the best athlete at that day, not just race with your brain. What is it about cycling that requires more of your brain? Why can a smart person beat a fit person? Because road racing, you start in a pack and you can draft and learning when to draft, when to pull, if you are going to pull, how hard you're going to pull and just kind of games (laughs) that people play. And I'm that little person. I'm like, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll go pull you guys all the way across the whole course. And then it comes down to like the last after two hours of racing just comes down to like the last literally 30 meter sprint. And then I'm wondering why I'm tired and have enough of the energy. And so it's learning how to not to be smart and just to sit behind the wheel or when to attack and respond to attacks or not to respond to attacks. And so when you say pulling, what does that mean that that's when people are drafting behind you? Yeah, so I would be, if we were riding a bike, I would be in front of you, you'd be behind me, and I'm pulling. And people in the draft save 30% of energy than the person that's in front, considering that's called pulling them across kind of thing. So there's a lot of, and it's things like that, knowing if you are pulling, don't do it for X amount of time or distance. Or if I know that I am stronger than you, that I would pull harder because I can sustain it longer and to try and tire you out. I believe that you're calling 2022 Operation Unfinished Business, are you not? (laughs) I am. (laughs) What's that about? Tokyo 2020, I'm hoping, is going to be my operation on takedown because in Rio, I got fourth place in the road race by like just like five meters. And then the time trial got fifth by around 30 seconds off the podium. And I was just so frustrated because I just knew what I did wrong. And I literally let the field play me like a fiddle towards the end. And when you say you you know what you did wrong and they played you like a fiddle, was it just this chess game of like pulling and drafting or what happened? Yeah. So I didn't want to get stuck. I didn't want to get boxed in in any way. And the last end was a very technical, had two sharp turns. And then after you make that U-turn, it's like 100 meters. So I knew whoever was going to go into the first two turns that was the podium right there. And that was my goal is to be at least one, two, three, and then duke it out out of that. But then what I don't have and what the other competitors have are teammates. And instead of sitting behind someone 
I went three wide. So there was two cyclists side by side. And then instead of staying behind them, I went next to them. So then I'm just like not getting any advantage of drafting or saving myself for that last sprint. But then when they took off, their teammates were right behind them, which with the draft sucked them in kind of like a vortex. And they were just able to attack where it caught me off guard. Fun fact, one of the competitors is my biggest rival in cross-country skiing as well. So it's just nice to take down that person. <laughs> wow. Who is that? She's from Germany, Andrea Eskow. She's a very accomplished, seasoned cyclist. And I respect her a lot in cycling. She was an able-bodied cyclist before she was injured. But she's very smart and very aggressive and will push you off the course if she needs to. And I just don't believe in that type of racing, but... Maybe I need to channel that in a little bit more. So what was the lesson on that day? Was it patience? What was the sort of lesson you're taking from that uh, race? Two things. I had no confidence and trust in myself and my abilities that I actually had more than I realized. So it's trusting myself, but also the positive of that was patience. Because when I was talking to my coach, he was saying that it takes a long time for athletes not to attack too early, which is like attacking from like and going out a mile out because then you're just going to die. Everyone's going to catch you. So I was patient enough. I just wasn't smart enough because I didn't trust myself. Whenever they would attack, I would be able to hold on with them because I was that baby in that sport. I didn't have that much time to train at all or in that new bike. And I think the biggest lesson in general for me in cycling is just trusting myself and trusting my training. That sort of gets to another question I wanted to ask you. I mean, this is probably sort of an impossible thing to answer, but rowing, biathlon, cross-country skiing, cycling, these are all incredibly aerobically taxing. How does the mental difficulty compare to the, the physical difficulty? Oh, my gosh. It's it's harder. It's, it's hard because, like, you know, you feel uncomfortable. You know what the burn is. You're like, oh, my gosh, here comes a hill. Like, this is going to hurt really bad. And then you know... You have those cues of on the downhill, you can recover. And so you're going to be able to get that. But mentally, you're on all the time, especially when you just like a long race and you're like, oh, my gosh, I've only one mile in and I feel like I'm about to die. Like there's no absolute way I can like sustain this for another 19 miles. But that's where I instead of having this conversation, this negative conversation with yourself in the middle of a race, I start tuning into the counting aspect because you train to be the fittest and the best so your body can do what it needs to do out physically, but it's your mind that's pushing the muscles that you're training for. It's the mind that's getting you, like, that's actually, like, more responsible in the race than your body is. And I think it's kind of interesting how sports psychology and the mental side of training as an athlete is just now becoming this newfound thing because it's always been there. Um, but cycling is the hardest for, for me to um, mentally stick with it and not question it or want to just like stop. But at the same time, I do not ever want to see a DNF unless someone needs to be carrying me off a course. And that's kind of also what's fueling me is ultimately I want to see where I am and I want to have the best result that I can. But I believe in finishing what I started. If I start this race, I'm going to finish it. And if this means that today it makes me dead last, then that's okay. I know where I to start tomorrow kind of thing. Or if I'm going to finish it and it puts me on the top of the podium, I have a new start line. And it's just kind of reframing perspective and how you approach things and how you tackle it. 
it sounds like it makes it a very process oriented thing instead of an outcome almost. It's like you're just constantly on the journey and wherever you finish, that's just where you start the next day. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, gold medal at the Olympics, you still got to You're still on the journey the next day in some ways, which is interesting. I love more the process of it all. Like, because if you just focus on just, I'm going to go for the gold. Okay. You achieved your gold. But, and I say the process because what fuels me as an athlete isn't the gold. It's, I want to one day retire as an athlete, knowing that that was my best race. I raced tactically, strength-wise. I would not change one single thing about this race that I was just so proud of it, regardless of where it lands me on the podium. If someone were to come to you, because obviously talking about sort of the physical barrier, the mental barrier, what advice would you give someone who's struggling to break through those, that mental barrier, that physical barrier? Are there sayings or mantras you come back to? Or uh, I'm just sort of curious if a friend came to you, how you would coach them to like, breakthrough, you know, have that sort of that thing where you realize you can do more than you think you can. So something I do on every single start line, because for me, confidence is one of those things that, and I always try to believe in myself more, which sounds ridiculous to say that as, as an athlete, but on the start line, I partially to kind of get my nerves calm too, is I breathe in really slow for a count of five, hold it and say, I am breathe out for five, hold it and say strong. And then I do it when the clock is, when you're hearing that beep, 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 beep. I love that sound. It's so good. I can't never make it sound as good as the clock does, but I love that sound. It kind of gets your nerves, your body calm, everything calm. And that last minute positive affirmation of you are like, you're strong. You can, you got this, you're doing, you can do this. And then also in the middle of the race, just, I, I don't honestly know what I would tell someone besides just trust the process and trust the hours you've put into the training and don't worry about you set this goal but the minute you're on the start line let that goal go and just let your body do what you trained for and go in autopilot mode and just be in the moment of each part of that race don't let your mind feed into those things that your body is just trying to tell your mind, oh my God, it hurts. We're uncomfortable. Let's stop. Let's just get a coffee break. It's just your body is just trying to find its way to get that coffee break. But don't feed into that. You're stronger than that. Your mind is stronger than your body. And to believe that when you're in the middle of that race. Also, something I do in all of my races is halfway through a race, I tell myself, okay, this is the real start line. It's in that middle of that race. And it's from there on out instead of the start lines in the back, kind of like the start line is the start line where the clock is. The start line's in the middle of the race. Now this is where you race kind of thing. And it kind of helps you get sharp, take that deep breath, and you do, you're able to do more than you realize in that moment when you start telling yourself things like that. Do you remember the first time you realized your mind was stronger than your body? Honestly, no. <laughs> I think because it's a learning process. I'm still learning it. I know it, but... I'm still learning and believing and trusting that my mind is stronger. And I think the moments that I realize it is in training because half the time training is so much harder than the actual race because that's the point. You're meant to break down your body. You're meant to just completely thrash yourself and your body's broken down so it can rebuild. And the race is not as hard as the training and the hours that you put in. And I think that's where I start to really believe and see that the mind is stronger that in this in this training because like I mean I'm not racing for four hours 
but I'm training for four hours in that one training day. And I'm not going to be doing three sets of time trial efforts ever. I was just one. So it's like when you're on a third one and you finish it and you realize that you didn't stop. That is where I believe and learn and see that the mind is truly more powerful in the body. And then the ultimate thing as an athlete is putting that together on the start line in the race and believing everything and having it all come together on that right time. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been really powerful about having these conversations with Olympians is it's amazing how all Olympians, and I'm sure a lot of people as well, struggle with self-doubt. And it's like, you know, I think from the outside, we're like, you guys are doing unbelievable things. You're just showing up to the line being like, I'm going to rip the competition apart. And it's kind of amazing to hear that there is some moments in the starting line where you got to be like, I can do this. I am strong. I think that's it's very powerful to hear that from elite athletes. I think it's the way you you interpret doubt, too, because in some ways it's fuel. It's like your body is trying to like psych you up and your mind's like, no, we've got this. And it's just just kind of the same feeling when you're on the start line and your heartbeat's like going crazy and you're like, oh my gosh, calm down, calm down. Your body knows it's getting ready for battle. It's getting ready for what you've been training for and it's thriving in this moment and that's all it is. And it's just me it also means that it means something to you that this isn't just some race. Whether it's like even like a job interview as an athlete, your heart rate is racing, there's a little bit of sad doubt. Because it means something to you. It's it's huge. It's because it means something to you. And that is the most powerful thing that we can use on earth. Trust that and just let it go. And then the minute you're, when you start something, just let it go and go into autopilot mode because that's when you're strongest. With your story and everything you, you've gone through and setbacks along the way, you never seem to let like discouragement win. And I'm curious why that is, because I'm sure you felt discouraged or I'm sure you felt angry and but it hasn't seemed to keep you from getting what you what you're going after. I honestly would say I wasn't always that athlete that didn't stop by being discouraged at all. And sometimes would would have those moments and we're human. It's okay. I think it was when I was younger training as like an early 20 year old and didn't really realize the magnitude of things and how to control everything and how to grow from it. As a kid and going through the experiences that I went through, that was my normal. I didn't know any normal. And you just you just go regardless and you just wake up, do it again, and just continue to keep moving one foot in front of the other. And is learning how to channel that and do the same thing into a sporting thing as well. And now knowing the purpose behind a lot of things and your kind of your why of why you're doing stuff was originally started out as to prove people wrong of what what I could do because my whole entire life people were telling me like what I could and couldn't do. And it was pissing me off so much that it was a way for me to like physically show society and people that there is more than one way to do something and there's no right and wrong way to do something. It's just different, but you're still doing it, whether it's with your legs or your arms. And that is where that helped me when those from getting discouraged because I wanted then to show that person what is possible, what I'm possible, and how dare they determine what they think is possible for me. But then also as a Paralympic athlete, it's a lot harder to break into that and get the resources and support and opportunities to get into sports that I don't want any other young kid or that next generation of a Paralympian or Olympian getting into a sport that maybe is underrepresented or isn't as supported and the opportunities aren't there as often. 
to just keep pushing and breaking down like what is perceived as discouraged, like not getting discouraged and preserving through, I see it as taking down those bricks on the wall so that next generation can just be able to walk right in and thrive as athletes and then do the same thing for the generation after them. Is that your why now? Yeah, that's definitely my why now. Because I wish I had that when I was 13, got into the boat and realized this isn't just therapy, which is amazing for its place, but also every child, just like a little kid, has pictures of Michael Jordan and Serena Williams and all these incredible Michael Phelps, incredible athletes on their walls, and they're five and they're like, I want to be like them. Well, every kid with born with a disability or unique difference or who requires something deserves the same idol, deserves the same physical representation to be like, I can be that person too. And I want to be that person from a young age. It shouldn't have to start with just investing financially so much and investing and just seeing if you like it first or waiting for those opportunities or wanting to do it, but the opportunities aren't there and the resources aren't there to try it. I think a lot of people will ask you, what's something you would tell your younger self? But a different version of that question is like, what's something you know going into these Paralympics that you wish maybe you had in 2008 when I know you failed to qualify, right? Or even 2012 when you did, when you did qualify. Honestly, just a race is nothing different than training. It's just another training day. The only thing that's different is the word training and race. And we associate race as this is the moment, this is it, this is fail or succeed kind of thing. Competitiveness and racing at the Paralympic Games. And that's something that I'm going to be thinking about in Tokyo on that start line when I'm hearing that clock countdown is This is just me in my living room with my Netflix, and I'm just going to train. This is the same environment, same thing, same motion. It's just a different word is all it is. The goal is the same. The pain's going to be the same. We've just got this really cool mountain in the background now of Mount Fuji. That's it for today's episode. I actually have a marathon coming up this fall and plan on using a bunch of the insights from Oksana. First, to think of the race as just another day of training. Sounds easier said than done, but I'm going to try it. To trust the work I've put in and let my body just do what it knows how to do. And when it really hurts, to just count to 10. In fact, on the day we recorded this episode, I had to go do a pretty hard workout, and I swear I ran it harder and better simply because of talking to Oksana that day. I just kept thinking of her words that your mind is stronger than your body. Your mind is stronger than your body. So I hope that you guys, even if you didn't work out after listening to this, find the conversation as affecting as I did. And a big, 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 big thank you to Oksana for coming on and joining us. It's also the end of this season of Smarter, Better, Faster, Stronger. The idea was to try and steal some insights from some of the world's best athletes on how to deal with things we all struggle with, confidence, mental health, controlling emotions, keeping calm, pushing yourself to do more than you think you can, all that good stuff. So I hope we delivered on that. At the very least, I hope you enjoyed some of the stories along the way. A huge, huge thank you to the athletes and coaches who joined us. Another gigantic thank you to Justin Wright and Jessamyn Molly of Seaplane Armada for editing, producing, and creating the original music. Thanks to GQ Sports, especially John Wilde, Sam Shuby, Melissa Yang, Corinne Furman, and Peter Lee. And as always, to you guys, thanks for listening. If you want to reach out, I'm at Clay underscore Skipper at GQ.com or at Clay Skipper on Instagram. And I will talk to you guys down the line.